Well, today we're looking at the second uh, part of the series called uh, It's Hope. And we're still at the beginning part of what Paul uh, was trying to do for this new church as much as he was wanting to build an image into them of what church can be. And we all experience church at different levels, don't we? Depending on our age, our experience, our backgrounds, where we've been over the years, different churches we've been involved with. And uh, sometimes it can be a bit tough. The memories can be tough. Uh, you might have been raised in a generation where the first thing you did when you went into church was be quiet, behave. All right? And how many of you experienced that when you were younger? Yeah? Yes, yeah, it's pretty common. So our view of church can be tainted in different ways. And so what Paul is wanting to do here is he establishes this new church in Thessalonica is he wants to build the heart of the church. And we're going to see his passion this morning for what really is the the, the defining part of his message as he builds the church through the person of Jesus Christ. So let me lead us in prayer. Why don't you shut your eyes? Father, we thank you this morning that uh, Scripture gives us all that we need to be able to understand not only the person of Jesus, but the church called his bride. And I would pray this morning that as we open up Scripture, we're going to see uh, how intentional Paul was about this thing called the church that we are part of 2,000 years later. And we want to ask you, Lord, to give revelation to us, give understanding, and just see the picture that Paul was wanting to paint for us. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Now, I've called the title of my message this morning, Beyond Judgment. Because Paul is going to position himself as a leader of the church, as somebody whom you should be modeling. That's what he's going to say. If you want to know how to follow Jesus, follow me. If you want to know how to live your life, do what I do. And that's a really bold statement to make, isn't it? Particularly in today's environment. Because truth is all relative. Your truth is your truth, and your feelings determine your truth. And and, and this is the way that the world sort of works today. There's no set truth. Have you noticed that? You talk to people about your faith and they'll say, good for you. What they're really saying is it's good for you, not good for me. And this is the world we live in, but Paul comes across very strongly. He's the one who's going to describe this faith to the audience that he's been given to by God, given by God. And in this season of his life, he is passionate about building a church on the right foundation. And I just want to give you an an idea of what it is that Paul was going through here. So here's a little map of Paul's journey. Here we've got Jerusalem, of course, the the origins of the gospel there with Jesus being crucified in Jerusalem. But Paul, this is his second missionary journey, and he goes up through here, and the book of Acts describes an amazing event that happens here when he has a dream of a man from Macedonia, this is modern-day Greece, calling him over. So he goes over, he meets a woman there called Lydia, who becomes a Christian in Philippi. And then um, through a series of events, he gets thrown into jail, beaten, and finally released. And he heads off to Thessalonica. And he's only here three or four weeks. This is the series that we're looking at, three or four weeks worth of uh, reflection on his time in Thessalonica. Uh, Here he gets a hard time as well. He leaves Thessalonica and goes to Berea. When he's at Berea, people from Thessalonica come to Berea and give him a hard time. So so Paul's sort of got this posse chasing him now, uh, upsetting what it is that he's trying to say, trying to tell people that he's a charlatan, that he's a liar, that he's tricking people, that he's not the real deal. 
And so we can obviously see and say that Paul is under pressure. There are two pressures that exist in Paul's life right now. There's the pressure of people wanting to get rid of him, people wanting to dismiss his message, and uh, in some cases they probably want to put him to death. But there's another pressure, an even greater pressure in Paul's life, and that is the compulsion that he has to share Jesus with people. He's had this powerful encounter with Christ. He knows that his story, his message is legitimate. He knows that God blesses what he has to say with uh, signs and wonders following. And now he's on a mission to all these cities around what we know now as modern day Greece. So Paul's in this tension, two pressures, a pressure to share the faith and a pressure from the outside to shut him up. So that's a very, very powerful pressure. But one of the problems that he faced is that Paul only spent three to four weeks in Thessalonica when this church was founded. Now, it's very hard to do anything over three or four weeks, let alone plant a church where you're trying to establish not only the person of Jesus, but a culture of how church should work together. Is that fair to say? That's a challenge. Three or four weeks, would you think? I would think so. It'd be more than I can handle anyway. And people have been coming in after Paul left... When Paul left Thessalonica and went to Berea, these people who were uh, persecuting him, they were the ones who were continuously speaking into this new church, telling them that Paul was a charlatan. And so from a distance, through this letter that we're looking at, Paul has to defend himself, which is a very difficult thing to do, isn't it, when you think about it? Trying to defend your character, trying to defend your message, all by writing a letter and at the same time wanting to build this church and encourage it. So Paul has got a whole lot of uh, agendas, really, in this one letter. So let's have a look at how he is starting to wrestle with and fight against and push back uh, the criticism that he faced. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Amen. So there's there's this defense that Paul is presenting to the people who are reading this letter, a defense of his visit that he'd been there. What he's trying to do is trying to remind them that he's a good guy. Okay? The problem that anybody faces in their absence is they have no defense. And so Paul is being accused of all of these subtle temptations that every one of us faces. This list of things that Paul is defending himself against is common to all of us. We can all uh, fall or fail in these areas. Firstly, Paul is being accused of error. He's being told that he is a charlatan, that the message is not true, that uh, Jesus isn't the son of God. Don't listen to this guy. Impure motives, Paul, it's all about you, isn't it? You're the, you just want to be the man, okay? 
And then, of course, trickery. And I, I suspect this might come in when you know, Paul was praying for people and there might have been a move of God and something miraculous happened. Trickery, that's how Paul did that. That wasn't really God at all. Flattery, Paul's compliments to the church, his gratefulness to the church, his, his, uh, his, his desire to lift up the church and tell them that they are chosen of God to hear this message. All of that comes like flattery, doesn't it? A negative flattery. And then, of course, greed. They'd be accusing Paul of making and taking money and just simply seeking praise from people. Now, every one of these things, we, are un- we understand how these things work. But the problem is for Paul, is he had no way to defend himself. He wasn't there in person. So he has to take these on one at a time and say, listen, let me remind you of who I am and who I was. I was there with you, and I have the right to defend who I am as a messenger of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, it's very easy to fall foul of people's, other wo- people's words about you, of gossip or accusation. Uh, and, and sometimes you have no way in which you can defend yourself. It's just simply the way life goes. Uh, but Paul... Uh, is prepared to stand up for his own reputation here. And the thing about these people is they can't physically kill him because he's no longer there, but they were seeking to do earlier on. They can't kill him physically, but they can kill his reputation. And by killing his reputation, it kills his message, which kills his mission. And if you want to know how this works, just watch politicians working at each other. The whole goal when a politician has a go at somebody, is to kill their reputation, kill their credibility, yeah? So that when they say something the next time, you go, oh, yeah, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. And that's how the game is played. And in this case, people were trying to kill Paul's reputation, say that he's nothing but a charlatan, nothing but a a trickster, and therefore don't listen to his message. But Paul says this, on the contrary, on the contrary to all those negative things, We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. So Paul is now saying, we did this thing well, we did it right, and I'm also appealing to a higher authority. It was God who tests us, God who challenges us, God who's the one who's keeping us in line with what his purposes are. And uh, the thing about thing about uh, God is that he'll test us in so many different ways, far greater than a than a, than a person can. In fact, this preparation this week, it reminded me of a proverb out of uh, Proverbs 27. It says this, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. Okay? You know, when someone comes to you and says, you're amazing, you're fantastic, you could actually believe that. You could walk away going, maybe I am amazing. Maybe I am fantastic, you know? Now, I'm not saying have a negative opinion of yourself. That's, uh, that's, a, uh, you know, that's sort of like a, an iconic part of our culture to do that. Um, we we want to be able to have a low self-image so that no one can put us down any further. That just seems to be the Kiwi way. But I'm not talking about that. Paul here is describing, sorry, Proverbs is describing how praise, when it comes your way, will sift and sort your motives, Okay? In the same way that heat will test the purity of silver and same with gold. 
when you're exposed to people's opinions of you and they, they flatter you and they pour praise on you, you have to be very, very careful. Or you can end up like the Kardashians. They actually believe what people say about them. You know, they think they're the most beautiful people in the world. I shouldn't have said that, but I just did. Okay? God, on the other hand, tests us. And it's a loving test. He challenges us. He puts things in our place which remind us that he's God, we're not. As you had an experience just yesterday, we're on an elders retreat in town. And uh, we wandered down to a cafe for lunch, wandering back, you know, the spiritual heavies of Bethlehem Baptist Church, walking down the street, and a bird popped on my head. <laughs> right there. Right on the bald spot, the landing, the runway. I was like, why did this happen to me? Seriously, why did this happen to me now? You know? Oh, just to humble you. I don't know. I have no idea, but it gave everybody a good laugh anyway. <clears throat> There's a bit of a, um, a conundrum. I was thinking this during the week. A bit of a conundrum when it comes to praise. Uh, and this is, this is my own version, okay? The praise conundrum. All right? If you're gifted and affirmed by God, and it doesn't matter what you do, you're in your workplace or whatever, and you're welcomed and valued by others, it all makes sense, doesn't it? Your motives are then measured at some point. And uh, if you fall into pride and you think it's all about you, that's pretty much where you'll end up. That's the end of the road. But more responsibility is given to those who will agree that the gifts have been given by God. You know, Even if you've worked really hard, don't ever assume that it's about you. So a friend of mine is an amazing piano player. And he says, Craig, people come up to me and say, man, you're so gifted. Mike, you're so gifted. It's amazing. He says, it's just incredible how gifted I've become after seven hours practice a day. Yeah, that's true. What he's saying is, yeah, sure, God has gifted these things to me, and I have a talent, but I've worked at it. But you have to also be careful about the fact that in the first instance, it is a gift, but it's a gift that you've worked on. And so this praise conundrum, it's a, it's a real difficult thing. And I think it's real difficult for Christians, actually. People say, hey, thanks very much for what you're doing. That's awesome. And you say, don't thank me, just thank God. You know, and then you sound, oh, you sound like you're over-humble. You know, are you allowed to be over-humble? I don't know. It's a real tension. Anyway, I'm not providing an answer here. I'm just providing a problem. So you work it out for yourself. Okay? That's the easiest thing to do. That's what church is all about. Come here and sort out your own problems. Okay. Paul says, we were not looking for praise from people. This is the critical element here. Not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. You know, this thing about praise is insidious. You know what I mean by the word insidious? I'll explain it to you. Insidious is stealthy and treacherous. Paul is trying to find that right balance between the honest truth of who he is and what he brought to this church versus this criticism that was coming against him. And so Paul had to find this narrow, narrow line between the lies 
that people were saying against him and understanding himself as God saw him. And I think that is a really big challenge. And yet Paul took it on in such a way that I think it defines him as a leader. He knew himself well enough to know what he brought. He knew himself well enough to know who he is. He knew himself well enough to know that he wasn't the summary of other people's thoughts about him. And that's a really cool place to be, isn't it? You know, just self-confidence, God-confidence, but not relying upon other people to build or prop up your reputation. And that's, that's a beautiful place to be. And I think in Christ, we can come to that place where we are confident in who we are without being robbed of anything or without giving away what we shouldn't give away. So Paul says, we're not looking for praise from people nor from anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. And uh, he says, instead, we were like young children among you. And I think the image here is an incredibly powerful image because he says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. That's how much Paul said he loved these people. And what Paul is wanting to do now is he's trying to build into this church that he only spent three or four weeks with a picture of love, a picture of caring and understanding that is way beyond normal human relationships. This isn't a club. This isn't an institution. This is the church. And in the church, Paul is saying, you should experience the same amount of love from one another as we do from God himself. And so Paul uses these powerful images, this powerful image saying, I, I love you as a mother loves her baby as she's nursing that child, as she's feeding that child. It's, it's close, it's tender, okay? It, it feeds, you know the image. But you think, you think of Scripture being given to us in this way, and, um, and I relate it back to myself. I think, could I write a letter to my church saying, I love you as much as a, like, like I'm, I'm breastfeeding you? That sounds weird, eh? Or was it just me? <laughs> it does sound weird. But Paul is using an image here that couldn't be more personal, couldn't be more intimate. Because why? Because he wants to, to remove this conversation from the argument about who he is and what he's about and people accusing him. He wants to transition it into saying, don't think of me as the summary of those, those bad words people have been using against me. Think of me in this way. I'm like a parent. I love you. I want the best for you. I want you to grow. And so Paul goes on, he says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. I've got this image of this, of a mum here holding a baby. Um, Paul says, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be burdened to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. So Paul's fashion was that he would arrive at a town, He'd literally go down to the market, buy some canvas and some leather or the equivalent of it, and he would set himself up anywhere, and he'd make a tent. He was a tent maker by trade. Okay, so that was a great trade to have because he could talk to people. So he'd go to the synagogue on a Sunday, and he'd, from the Old Testament scriptures, and remember those are the only scriptures they had in the day, 
he would prove to people through the prophecies that Jesus had to come. He was the one who was to suffer, and he was the one who would die ultimately as the Lamb of God for our sins. He would prove that from the Scriptures. And then people would come and sit with him as he stitched together his tents, cut up the cloth. And out of that, he was looking after himself. He wasn't being a financial burden to anybody. He was proving that the gospel is about you, not about him which is a complete contradiction to the way that society ran in the day. You see, in the day, you had all sorts of uh, philosophers and wise people who would go from town to town. And the goal of these wise people is that they sort of operated at different circles of influence. You know how it is today, if we get an overseas entertainer come, and if they've got a great reputation, they go to the big venues in the city, right? I think... um, Elton John is coming next year or something, so it's going to be big news. So he gets the best arenas. If you were the best speaker in a town, you got to stay at the best homes, the wealthiest people, and they would entertain you, they would pay you, and then they would invite all of their friends around to come and listen to what it is that you had to say. And that's how life worked in those days. So Paul is now arriving in Thessalonica as he arrived in other towns, and he's saying, I'm not operating like that. I'm going to make tents. And you can come and we can talk all day. And then the book of Acts even records that Paul talked all night one night to the point where a young fellow sitting at the window fell out the window and died until Paul prayed for him and he came back to life, which is kind of handy. Kind of handy, really. Okay. So this is Paul's way. But he wasn't trying to make money. He wasn't merchandising anything. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm creating holy Jesus tents here. You know, where you open the window on my tent and the Holy Spirit will blow in. He wasn't marketing denim Jesus jeans for you to get around in or, you know, anything like that. He wasn't merchandising the gospel. He was there proving that the gospel is a compelling truth all in its own right. And it wasn't about him. And this is the thing that drives Paul almost, I wouldn't say insane, but it must, must have really got under his skin. Because Paul was being accused of things that he wasn't. And so he has to again and again defend himself. And Paul says this, You are my witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. That's a huge claim, eh? You go to your life group this week and you say, I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm blameless. You see how people respond to you. Give it a try. Give it a try. But this is the sign of somebody who knows their calling, they're mature, they're not arrogant, but he can look back and measure and test his lifestyle and say, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm here bringing the gospel. I'm not here with impure motives. I'm not here trying to trick you, cheat you, steal from you. I'm here to bring you one thing and one thing only, and that's Jesus Christ. And I love you people like a mother does who nurses her baby. You go, Paul, wow, that's a lot of love. And we can feel the tension of the fight that Paul was under as he defended his right to plant not only a church, but a church that was built on love, And it wasn't just the love of Jesus, it was the love of fellowship, the depth of that. And so 
you can see why the pressure was coming upon him because this, this, this gospel that he was preaching was so contrary to anything people had heard before. This is the love of God being built into people's lives. And Paul is creating an image of what the church can be. It's probably way bigger than our, our own experiences. But not only this, Paul goes on to say, use other terms, he goes, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So Paul is saying, not only am I a mother to you, I'm a father to you. These are depth of relationships that we can have in the life of the kingdom of God, which can be far greater than anything we've even experienced in our own biological families. In fact, I've heard many stories, maybe some of you today would say that knowing Jesus has cost you the relationships in your family. And you've come into fellowship and you've been able to build relationships with other people that are deep and meaningful, purposeful, caring, people who you know you would you know, give the shirt off your back for and they'd do the same for you. That's that love that, <clears throat> that Paul is trying to describe. And I thank God for Paul, who under all this pressure was trying to build an image for us of what the church can be. And without his high view of the church, without his high view of the church, we wouldn't be here today. If Paul had said, look, I want you to get together, have a prayer meeting, or bring a pizza, call it a potluck lunch. That's a great idea. And that was the all the, all the image was that he held for us, the church wouldn't have survived. But he had an incredibly big, powerful image of a loving community. On Friday, uh, I took a wedding. Uh, uh, you might know the parents of this, this guy, um, Gary and Desiree Curtis, part of our church, and their son, Jason, uh, who's living in Australia, lovely Christian guy. Uh, he met a Brazilian woman at Hillsong in Sydney. And um, I got asked sort of six months ago whether I'd do the wedding for them. And so I was preparing for this, and I thought, how is it that two people from vastly different cultures can love each other so deeply to get married? You know? Well, you know, they're nice, good-looking young people. I suppose you could say they could like the image of each other, and that could help. But what it was is that their parents at different parts of the world took them to church. And one in English got to learn about love, sacrifice, Christ, what it means to be kind, patient, caring, what it means to serve, to work hard, to build all of those values into somebody's life. And on the other side of the world, some parents took their daughter to church and in Portuguese learnt the same things because they reflected on the person of Jesus. So when they get together and they meet each other and they start to get to know each other, they very quickly can go from, you're a woman, you're a man, you're different, you're from Brazil, I'm from New Zealand, that's different, you like these foods, I like these foods, you like this music, I like that music. And then you start getting below the surface and you find that all of these values are exactly the same. And this is where it counts. If you want a relationship that lasts, it's the stuff under the surface that has to have that, uh, 
the ability to connect, doesn't it? It's not whether you like the same music or the same food, but it's your ability to be able to connect at a deep, deep spiritual level. And so this is what the gospel does. By virtue of Paul's image and value for the church, the church has been built over 2,000 years, and it is way, way bigger than us. But it has this depth of value, this depth of love, this depth of purpose and significance that is global across the world that allows us to be the body of Christ. And if you've followed Jesus for a long time or even for a short time and you meet other, fellow, you meet other believers, it's such a, a great thing, isn't it? Where you meet people and you don't really know them very well, but you know that they love Jesus and their whole life is shaped at that level of values in exactly the same way that yours is. That's what Paul was aiming to do. And that's what Paul was prepared to pay a price for. And these, my friends, it's hope. It's hope. Why don't we stand for prayer? God, we come before you and uh, I think it would be easy to confess that we probably have a lower view of the church than Paul does. Paul did. And we know that uh, it's, it's an institution that's got its flaws, but bigger than that, it's the bride of Christ. And here we find a mother and a father. Here we find love and care. Here we find nurture and food. Here we find the ability to be able to know and be known. Here we find people who will love us and correct us. God, we, we thank you for the body of Christ, and we thank you for Paul's vision that carried the gospel into our, into our lives through this body, the church. And we thank you that the likes of Paul never gave up believing what it could be, never surrendered it just to uh, local popularity or pressure from others, but he held on to that high view of love, that high view of God's lordship in, this, in the lives of people, and, and he pushed back on people who would tell lies about who he was. So God, we, we're just so grateful. It's a powerful image of how we can be the church and be centered around the person of Jesus. So God, we just want to pray that this would grow in us in these weeks ahead, that this picture that Paul paints is not lost on us, but it builds us and allows us to, to grow accordingly. Lord, for some of us who have had difficult time in the church, you know, maybe been hurt, um, maybe over the coming weeks, Lord, we could, we could use this time by your grace to, to lay those hurts aside, be built up again, be strengthened again, and to at the same time recognize that we're never perfect, but don't lose sight of it. This is your plan. This is your, your body. And we're grateful to be a part of it. So we ask these things in the hope that not only can we be part of it, but we can receive something of that passion that Paul had. That would not only allow us to be part of it, but we would, we would bless it, nurture it, feed it, grow it. That's the side we want to be on. So we ask all of this willingly, hopefully, 
we ask it in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.